Sounds good. Good afternoon. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Jerry Hahn. I'm with Sirius here on campus. And I just wanted to take a moment to introduce our speaker today. Our speaker is Dr. Sanjay Narain. He's a fellow and chief scientist of Systems and Cybersecurity Department at Vincor Labs. So currently he's been working with a, a leading an effort in science of configuration projects to increase the efficiency and accuracy of building cyber infrastructure by several orders of magnitude. So he has his degrees from the Indian Institute of Technology, Syracuse, and UCLA. And the topic of his talk today will be a science of cyber infrastructure configuration. So I'll turn it over to Dr. Noreen. Thanks a lot, Jerry. So <clears throat> thank you for inviting me to this uh, seminar series. Um, so Vencore Labs, in case you are not aware of, uh, it descended from Bell Labs from a while back. And uh, right now we are, um, um, you know, we, we are contractors for the federal government. We do contract-based uh, research. Um, so the, uh, I'll be talking about uh, science of uh, infrastructure configuration. And uh, one of the unique aspects of this is to apply some uh, the powerful uh, logic-based techniques so, uh, to, to this problem. And logic was invented for proving theorems about you know, proving things about various, uh, various, various fields, but uh, what this is, uh, applying logic to actually synthesize uh, networks uh, um, with, with certain guarantees. Um, my background is uh, mathematical logic. Uh, I had the good fortune to study with a professor called Alonzo Church. Anybody know who Alonzo Church is? Anybody know the name? Right, so, okay. So he was actually uh, the advisor of Alan Turing. And he was the first person to formalize the notion of computing. Uh, and the lambda calculus is, is actually his formalization. And then Turing came later, but since Turing was a much more operational model of computing, he is considered to be the father of computing rather than, rather than Church, but you know, they all got along. But when Church retired from Princeton, uh, he went to UCLA and I was a grad student there and <clears throat> I got to know of him uh, um, you know, when he was 83 years of age, and he was still lecturing away and guiding students, and he was a chief editor of Journal of Symbolic Logic, and so I didn't waste any time. I studied with him for two years. And actually, prior to that, I was a student of uh, J. Robinson at Syracuse, who invented resolution theorem proving. And then, um, in recent years, there is a person called Sharad Malik, <clears throat> who created breakthroughs in, in, in SAT solvers. And uh, he's at Princeton, so we collaborate. We have collaborated with him for a number of years. So, um, having worked at Belcore and Bel uh, Bel Belcor for for a number of years, and then you know, uh, I'm also an expert in uh, networking. So, a lot of my work has been in combining, uh, applying formal methods and logic to solving real networking problems. And this is one of the most interesting projects I've I've, I've had. So what's configuration? So typically, um, network vendors offer you components, like routers, switches, hosts, firewalls. And you buy those, but then you have to configure them. And the configuration is the, they basically offer many um, knobs or configuration variables that you have to set to definite values to logically integrate these things. It's not enough to just cable them together, but you also have to configure them. <clears throat> and um, so, the the this is hard configuration is hard and the there are many studies to show that uh, configuration errors they 
account for 50% to 80% of downtime and vulnerabilities. So in this talk, I will try to give you an idea of why uh, that is so, why the configuration problem is hard, and how we can use logic to uh, solve that problem. So let's uh, look at this uh, <clears throat> uh, diagram on the left. So today, if you want to send sensitive information over the uh, internet, uh, let's say you are trying to collaborate with your allies, you know, USA is trying to collaborate with its allies uh, in foreign countries, then you either have to use government encryption equipment or you have to use a government-only network. And uh, the, however, there is a recent uh, uh, standard that has been approved by the government that says you can dispense with both of these requirements. You can use commercial equipment and you can use public, public internet. Wow. How, how is this possible? This is possible provided you satisfy some fairly stringent requirements. And one of them is double encryption. So before your sensitive data can hit the inter uh, internet, you have to encrypt it tw two times. And those two encryption points must be from different vendors. So diversity is, is critical. So diversity uh, and double encryption are two of the pillars of, of this new standard. So let's say you want to set up a, a network like that. So there are four enclaves, you know, from clockwise you can see, and each of these has two, two uh, security levels, L0 and L1. And the requirement is that L0 devices on each, each enclave can only talk to L0 devices and other enclaves. And L1, same for L1, but of course L0 information cannot ever leak into L1 channels and, and vice versa, right? And so the way you would satisfy this uh, requirement is to set up the, you know, the, let's say for the server on, on uh, the L1 server will go to this inner gateway <clears throat> and then it'll hop onto a tunnel and to this, uh, to, to the, uh, its counterpart on the other, uh, uh, other enclave here. But of course that data will then go here those packets, encrypted packets, will go to the outer gateway and then they'll be re-encrypted and then they'll go to the counterpart here, they'll be decrypted, then they'll be decrypted here, then they'll make it here. And the same thing for all the other enclaves. So you're setting up this full mesh of IPsec tunnels. Inner, inner tunnels, you're setting up a full mesh of outer tunnels and you then, of course, you have to take care of routing too. So all of the data that goes from, uh, goes from here, this has a static route that it, you know, all the data is pushed here. This also has a static route that all the data is pushed here. And then this has a static route that all the data is pushed here. And then they are running, let's say, a dynamic routing protocol. In this case, we chosen to be chosen to be OSPF. So this is the plan, right? If you are a, a, an experienced uh, network administrator, you can take this plan and implement it. And how do you implement it? By uh, configuration languages, by configuring all of these about 25 devices. and uh, typically, they, they offer, they have these configuration languages. And here, this is a Cisco IOS uh, uh, language. And what is this saying? It's saying, uh, this is setting up IPsec configuration. This is setting up, let's say, the key and the address. This is the, this is so IGW C0 CFG. So IZ, I, IGW is uh, one, of the, one of these inner, inner gateway routers. And this is setting up an IPsec tunnel, so the remote uh, is 21033, and this is the, so uh, 21033 is this, this, this is the remote here. 
and this is setting up the um, uh, configurations for the uh, logical tunnels, the tunnel zeros, these are the GRE tunnels and they are different from the physical interfaces. So you set up their source and destination and then you set up the physical addresses and you set up the uh, OSPF configurations and you set up the, uh, the um, ACLs to define what packet is going to be encrypted by the IPsec tunnels. So there are all these uh, variables that you have to set and they have these stylized languages but effectively what's, what's going on is that you have to set the values of lots of variables to definite uh, lots of variables. And um, so the on the scale of which on which you have to do this thing is something like you know a typical router is like thousand lines of iOS configuration. iOS is the Cisco's language and each uh, line is setting the value of at least one variable. So you have a thousand variables per device and it's so let's say you have 100 routers in your domain so you have 100,000 variables to set right 100,000 variables now the question is why is it hard the reason it is hard is that can you set the values of these variables independently of each other can you just go and say okay I feel like setting the IP addresses of these variables to be this and I set the IPsec variables to be uh, this value and so on well obviously not because there are dependencies and uh, so, for example, if you use 21033 here, you better use the same thing here, and you better use the same thing here, and you better use the same thing here. These things all have to line up. You see, you are sending the data. If you have an address, then the, it, the, the static routes have uh, keyed to that address, and the routing is keyed to that address, and then the tunneling is keyed to that address, and then the IPsec and the ACLs, and all of those things are keyed to that address. So, if you change that, all of that has to propagate throughout the, throughout the network, throughout all the variables. Who does that? Where is that? So there are dependencies, right? There is an at least an existence proof that there are dependencies that govern the values of these variables. So where do these dependencies come from? They come from the the you know the overall design here. These are the requirements. This is the architecture requirements that we have decided on, and then these induce the dependencies on these variables. So today these dependencies are basically created. They are implicit in in the administrator's head. And then, so not only he has to figure out what these dependencies are, he has to solve them as well. And this is hard because if you have a thousand variables per device, you have a uh, hundred thousand variables throughout the network and similar number of constraints. So solving hundred thousand constraints and hundred thousand variables is, is a hard job and obviously you will make mistakes no matter how smart you are. So. Um, uh, that's why it's well documented that about 50 to 80 percent of downtime and vulnerabilities are due to configuration errors. So what can we do to eliminate these configuration errors has been the subject of this uh, project. Okay, so um, <clears throat> the basic intuition is that if you have a system to automatically figure out what these dependencies are and if you have a system to automatically solve them then we are on to something, right? because the dependencies are causing uh, the source of the dependency and identification of the dependencies. Those are the two fundamental problems that are manually solved today. So that's what we basically have. And <clears throat> I'll, I'll tell you how, uh, so what else we have uh, developed around that basic idea. So uh, what we have is a system called uh, DADC, uh, stands for Distributed Assured and Dynamic Configuration and it basically bridges the gap between the requirement 
or the intent rather, uh, and the detailed configurations. So uh, it bridges the gap with these following tools. There is a requirement specification language. So you can basically specify requirements in, uh, in this form, this visual form, which, and I'll show you essentially this thing in, in a few minutes. And then configuration synthesis means we'll identify dependencies and find the values of the, solve them and find the values of the variables. Uh, diagnosis means that suppose you already have a configuration, then is it compliant with your requirements? And if not, how can you repair it at minimum cost, ideally? Uh, reconfiguration planning is that even if you know what the correct configuration is, how do you get there? In what order do you change the configuration so you don't introduce security breaches along the way and you don't disrupt mission critical services, right? The ordering can, can play a, a major role in that. So uh, verification is how do you know that your requirements themselves are correct? Well, you know, I, my overall requirement is that there shouldn't be any data leakage. So I, I use IPsec tunnels and, and ACLs, but maybe I made a mistake in my, in my design itself. So can we check that the design itself is correct? So the design problem is different from the compiler problem. You know, once you have a design, then you can, uh, we've, uh, you can generate the configurations that implement that design. That is, that is good, but how do you know the design itself is correct? So that's a separate problem. But uh, we have a framework to, to do that verification as well. <clears throat> Distributed configuration is when uh, you have to set up, let's say, a collaboration network where there are multiple sites, and, uh, but there isn't a centralized configuration authority. So you can plan your configurations all you want, but you can't go and push the configurations to a foreign country's routers. You know, they have their own administrators. So how do you negotiate with each other as to what the requirements are and what the configurations are. Today it takes a long, 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 long time. So what are the principles that underlie that is uh, we have tried to identify those and in our distributed configuration uh, algorithms. And then requirement inference is going bottom up. Suppose you already have, most of the time you don't have requirements listed, uh, described uh, explicitly. So what if you, so you, you just have 100,000 lines of configuration, you'd inherit somebody else's uh, uh, network. And so can I uh, you know, infer what was intended? Uh, so that's, the, that's that problem. And finally, emulation interface. This is very, very important for if you, if, if you, if you can get it, that I, I create all these config, configurations, but uh, how do I know that they are doing the job? Well, you can build a lab or build a network, but that's often hard for all sorts of reasons. So there are very good emulators now available. Um, and so there is one for, uh, for Linux, which is exceptionally good, which is called Core, C-O-R-E, Common Open Research Emulator, I think it's called. So it emulates Linux routers. So you can uh, actually, if you, if you are willing to use Linux, uh, Linux routers, then you can pretty much get down to the, so emulators are different from uh, simulators, by the way. Emulators is the real thing. They, you have the full Linux stack. Uh, it's not like uh, you are approximating their, their behavior and you know, so it's, it's, a, it's a real thing. Okay, and these problems are hard because you know, how, do you, how do you specify intent? Uh, okay, so logic, there are many, many different kinds of logic. So we have this intu intuition that we want to model these requirements as logic and we use, uh, uh, dependent, uh, uh, we, we want to use a you know, constraint solver or a dependency, uh, we want to resolve the dependencies. Well, that's a logical problem, but 
what logic, what language are we going to use? There are so many different logics. There is, well, there is Boolean logic, there is uh, first order logic, there is uh, horn clauses, which is prologue, uh, there are higher order logic. So which, which logic are we going to use? So we have actually gone through many choices and we think we hit on a, on a, on a sweet spot here. And, uh, you know, the, there are, there's the, just the scale of the problem and the nature of these problems it just makes, makes all of these problems uh, uh, hard. So, uh, let's uh, sketch how these problems are addressed in NDADC. So, let me just run through, you know, this is a very, very high level uh, account of what an SMT solver is. So SMT solvers, if you have not gone through this, uh, this is an extremely powerful tool. I mean, by the way, logic is, uh, you know, uh, I think of logic as a liberal, liberal arts of computer science because it's about relationships and how to solve relationships, right? And those are everywhere. Whenever, so, you know, getting a good grip on that is, is very, very, in my opinion, very important for, especially for computer scientists. And fortunately today, the, the tools are there so that you can basically pick up these things on your own. Uh, one of the most important tools is Z3. Anybody heard of Z3? Z3 is a constraint solver for Microsoft Research. And just recently they made a public domain, fully public domain, it's free. So that is like an amazing contribution to the community. So SMT solver stands for uh, satisfiability, satisfiability modular theories. Um, so what does that mean? Okay, so we want to model dependencies and we want to solve them. Well, what's the most primitive language for modeling dependencies? It's Boolean logic. Now, everybody has heard of Boolean logic, right? Please don't tell me you don't know. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah. Okay, so, uh, so Boolean logic is, uh, well, you have Boolean variables and you can combine them with Boolean operators like and, or, and not to construct Boolean formulas. And uh, so the satisfiability uh, problem is to assign trues and false to uh, the variables in the formula to, to, make it, to make it true. So the most obvious way to do this thing is to create a truth table. But if you have n variables, then you have two to the n rows in the truth table, and this is exponential, and you can't just go through those. And if you have a, so, um, so even though this is an NP-complete problem, uh, this is the contribution of, uh, uh, you know, Sharad and others that they figured out heuristics for solving this problem that, you know, in many practical cases, they can solve a million constraints and million variables in seconds. So that's what we did. We, uh, when we discovered these about a decade ago, we said, okay, let's, let's uh, use these to solve networking uh, constraints. Okay, and then one other very nice feature of uh, SAT solvers is the creation of the unsat core. So suppose they say we can't solve it, constraint is unsolvable. Well, uh, then they also produce often a small subset of the constraints which is also unsolvable, which is very, very helpful because it pinpoints the area which is contributing to the unsolvability. And that can be taken to be a, a root cause and we actually exploit that fact in the repair part. You know, if a configuration is inconsistent, how do you change the value of it to make it to restore the consistency? So that's good, but Boolean logic is very low level for modeling networking constraints because you want to talk about things. We want to talk about, you know, um, routers and interfaces and addresses and policies. And so uh, 
these uh, language we're talking about all these things is available in SMT solvers. So SMT solvers, they assemble domain specific solvers from uh, multiple domains, which is why modulo theories, T, the theory means a domain. So if you have solvers for linear programming and you have your solvers for uh, other languages, then don't, we, we do, there is no need to translate everything into a SAT problem, which is not going to be practical anyway. So you just use those, but uh, you combine the solvers for Boolean logic and all these other languages into a single framework, well, well integrated framework called SMT. And that's what uh, systems like Z3 offer. So there is one particular language called EUF, which is equality of uninterpreted functions. Um, but it's very, it lets you basically talk about things, talks about data structures. So now suddenly the exp expressive power is, is, is the right amount and we have the powerful solvers. So now life is good. So how do we exploit this thing? So how do we use SMT solvers to build the DADC tools? Okay, so it's good that we have a language, but then what is the semantics? What primitives are we offering a person, a designer? So the, this is a semantic problem, domain specific problem. And we have gone and identified a number of common patterns that people use when drawing these uh, uh, logical architecture diagrams. People, when they're planning their their network, they draw these architecture diagrams. And it is uh, not just physical connectivity, but also the logical connectivity. How do you do, you know, what is the security architecture, which is a different thing, totally different thing than the, than the <clears throat> physical architecture. You see, look at this. This is a rectangle or maybe a full mesh of tunnels between the uh, inner gateways, right? This is a separate logical structure than the physical links that connect these routers. Same thing for this, you know, outer, outer full mesh of tunnels. So there are different logical structures that we set up. And so can we identify these logical structures and, and relationships and um, uh, allow people to uh, use them? And, but the, uh, the, the critical idea is that to model these, these relationships and structures with these patterns as statements of logic so that you can compose them. What does composition mean? That I want an IPsec tunnel here and I want uh, you know, a static route here uh, and I want GRE tunnels here and, and so on. So you, you, the problem is that if you don't have uh, composition, then what will happen? You will say, oh, let me set up an IPsec tunnel here and let me set up a GRE tunnel here. But what if I, in setting up the satisfying the second requirement, I um, you know, uh, invalidate the first requirement? So then you have to backtrack and set, find another solution to the first requirement and go and satisfy the second one. And then you have to go and satisfy the third one and keep backtracking. So is this backtracking that the SMT solver will basically eliminate? It will take all of your requirements and try to find a solution to all of, the, uh, to all of them. So that is the compositionality. This is a very powerful guarantee that you don't just get through, through you know, ad, hoc, ad hoc methods. So again, the, the idea is firstly identify interesting patterns and secondly model the interesting patterns as, as logic. So that's what you have done. That's one of the biggest contributions of, uh, of the ADC. So then uh, 
then you basically then you take these patterns and then you, you so a person can drag and drop these patterns onto his canvas and say yeah this is my network design and then you uh, the system will uh, DADC is going to translate those patterns into into constraints and then um, use an SMT solver to solve them find the find the configurations so that's the synthesis uh, um, uh, solution to the synthesis problem uh, and diagnosis is, you know, if there is inconsistency, then it'll, you use the unsat core. Repair it would be to relax the values of variables in the unsat core and retry. And there is another very powerful feature of these called maxat, which says, uh, can I uh, find a, a solution at um, whose whose cost is whose cost is minimum? And um, then verification is a similar idea, and reconfiguration planning is a similar idea. So these are all well documented in either patents or, or in uh, in papers. And there is a list of references at the end. So this is the uh, overall idea. Okay. So here are some example requirements. So there is a one of the patterns is a subnet. So you say a subnet is just a range of addresses, contiguous range of addresses. So this is specified by a net network ID and a mask and then list of interfaces. So what does that mean in terms of constraints? What it means is that there are all the interfaces, the IP addresses of all the interfaces in the subnet <coughs> must be in the range specified by net and mask. Right? That's number one. Number two is that they must all be distinct. Number three is that they must not be at the edges. Uh, they must not be equal to the network uh, ID itself. And they must not be equal to the broadcast uh, address, which is all once. It's typically, it is like, 1.1.1.0 1 .1 uh, and 24-bit mask. So the network ID is 1.1.1.255. Well, you should, certainly should not assign that to be an IP address. So these are the four constraints that constitute subnet. And when an example of that is that 10.151.0.0.24 and S1 each 0 and S2 each 0 are the two interfaces on it. Similarly, there's a GRE tunnel. So when you say I have a GRE tunnel that places definite constraints on the GRE configurations of that, then similarly, if you have, say, I have an IPsec tunnel, then it places lots of constraints on the IPsec configura configuration. For example, they must use the same key, right? If there is an IPsec tunnel between you and me, we'd better use the same key if you, if you are doing the pre-shared key uh, model. And then my peer value should be your address, and your peer value should be my address, and we should use the same encryption and the hash, hash algorithm. <coughs> and then building on that, you can have a full mesh of IPsec tunnels. Uh, so that you don't have to set up these n-square tunnels explicitly. And then next hop is the static route. So you're saying the next hop at G, G is a router, and so any address that matches the desk and mask, basically is in this range. Desk and mask, the address and a mask always specify a range of addresses. So you're saying if, I, if this G gets a packet in this range, then it should forward it to the next hop interface, the, the interface I of next hop. But typically, it is uh, an, um, an address. So you're saying it should be an IP address of the next hop in I. So this is actually quite a powerful feature also of our language, and which is delivered to you by the logical basis of it. That typically, you have to say, you have to nail up the, in, in, uh, the next hop, right? You have to say, this is the address of uh, the, the next hop. In the static route, you have to have the next hop. But that means that unless you have or don't know the address assignment, you can't write the static route wrapping rule. The same thing for firewalls. You know, you have your, they only are keyed on the 
uh, explicit addresses, so you can't write the firewall rules unless you've done the address assignment. So this, this sequentiality goes away with the logical framework. You could just specify all these constraints, and then when the IP address is assigned, it'll propagate throughout the system. Okay, so this is the DRDAC architecture, just this, um, telling you how all the, what are the different pieces. So basically you have a requirement. This, let's look at the main, main branch here. So you have a requirement, then it is, goes through a requirement parser, and the requirements are uh, produced in internal form, then they are transformed into primitive constraints, then they're given to a solver and it solves it and produces the abstract configurations and then they're uh, sent to a vendor specific adapter and then they're given to, uh, a, you know, you generate the Cisco specific or Linux specific or there's five vendors we support and then you can apply them to the configurations. And then you can have this branch also, if you already have the configurations then you can run them through a configuration parser and actually solve in the context of configurations so you can repair these if, if needed. We also have visualization engines. And then this is the, you know, if it can't solve, then it produces the root cause of unsolvability. Okay, so this is a distributed uh, ADC architecture. But basically, you, if you don't have um, a, single, a single administrating administrative domain, but you have multiple, so if you partition the network into multiple domains, and then each is governed by, each, each runs the DADC engine. But then to coordinate their activities, they run over the, a, a CAP bus, which, is, which exploits the two things. One is the um, uh, total ordering guarantees, uh, message, message ordering guarantees of group communication protocols. Uh, have you heard of J groups? Or, um, so basically, if there are multiple, uh, you know, if you have a group, then you start sending messages to each other, you can receive messages in different orders. Different people can re receive messages in different orders. But these group communication protocols ensure that everybody receives messages in the same order. So this means that we can approximate, we can have a, we can create the illusion of a single controller for the entire system because everybody gets messages in the same order. And the second thing is the determinism of the SAT SMT solvers. So everybody is running this same uh, SMT, uh, uh, constraint satisfaction problem solution, but everybody will arrive at the same conclusion because of this message ordering guarantee. So that gives us a nice way to coordinate the activities and yet avoid having a single administrative domain. So you get the global consistency. And then we also have a way to, you know, have multiple controllers and then they sync up so that if one fails, the other takes over. Uh, what about scalability? So we ran, uh, we created a fault tolerant VPN, something like what, what I just showed you. Uh, and, you know, up to a thousand routers, it's like uh, under a minute. So the solution to all the configurations of thousand routers is produced under a minute. But then it kind of ramps up. So we, we did it for 20,000 routers and it went up to whatever, 1,700 uh, minutes. So uh, it's pretty good for uh, a lot of medium scale uh, networks. Uh, okay, so this is the kind of the new thing for network planning. So uh, today, if you want to, uh, create a network, you have to sketch the diagram on the whiteboard like what was shown in the second slide. You draw the visual diagram, then you translate into configurations, you translate into vendor specific configs, 
you create a network and apply the configs and you test the network as intended. Uh, and if it doesn't work, then oops, where is the problem? Was the problem here? Or was the problem here? Or was the problem here? Or was the problem in the design itself? So uh, with, uh, with DADC, you know, you draw the live network diagram, DADC diagram, and then you can straight away go to the test if the network works as intended if you have an emulator. And if, uh, if it works, then if it doesn't work, then you know that the problem is in the design itself. You don't have to worry about you know, all the intermediate steps. So we feel that this can greatly improve the network planning times. I mean, the network takes, networks today take months to, to set up you know, something complex. So can we reduce that time to, uh, you know, like hours at least. Okay, so what's the relationship with SDN? So um, we had the same motivation that configuration is hard and it's hard to conceptualize networks as a whole and networks are not programmable, but instead of saying that we need to remove the control plane and, uh, and keep the devices dumb and then reprogram the control plane, we uh, took a deeper look at why, what makes the configuration hard, and we feel that the, what, what makes it hard is all these dependencies that have to be manually resolved. So therefore, if you use a logic-based engine, then you, know, then you have kind of the best of both worlds. You can use the legacy devices. You can use not so much legacies, but you can use the devices which have the control plane, and control plane is really powerful. I mean, OSPF is a, very, uh, is a, is a wonderful feat of uh, engineering. So uh, let's retain that and just figure out how to configure it correctly. And then it'll do all the heavy lifting for us. We don't have to reinvent the, the control plane. Okay, obviously, if the control plane is what you want, right? If it, if it is not what you want, then, then you have to re-implement it. Uh, you have to implement it. But, but the point is that there are lots of good control plane protocols and why not just figure out how to l let them go to work for us by just configuring them correctly. And then networks as a whole can be conceptualized as a set of requirements. I mean, that's what logic is for, is to say that, you know, all these things, how do these, all these things uh, hang together? Well, you know, there are these dependencies, you specify those dependencies, and now you have a way to conceptualize the networks as a whole. And programmability is, has not been there in, in routers, so, but we just use the, whatever the features are available. So we are not inventing a new programmable router or anything, we're just using the facilities. So <clears throat> right now we use SNMP or FTP or, FTP or whatever to send the configurations to the routers or read them back or SSH. But there are routers now with proper APIs, so we'll just use those. Okay, so let's do a, a quick demonstration of this. So. Um, What I did was uh, this is this is the uh, specification in the of a system like I showed you. So you have TS1 and S1, and then a TS1 data goes to ITS1, and then there is a full mesh between this guy and it should, oh yeah, I think it is right. It lights up. It says that there is a full mesh between ITS1 and ITS4 and ITS2 and ITS3. And we have, you know, avoided the need to, you know, draw the six, six of those lines. You know, we just say full mesh and point to the arguments and it generates all the n square tunnels. And then uh, you go to, then the data goes to V1, it's re-encrypted, so there's another full mesh here. 
and then it goes to W1 and then this is running OSPF. So, if you click on this, it will tell you what are all the interfaces on which OSPF is running. So, one interesting thing, couple of uh, interesting things is there are no IP addresses here. I mean, these are network IDs, right? But we have not gone to each interface and assigned an IP address. This, even this can be a, a, a non trivial problem assigning IP addresses to all, all of these guys. Okay. Uh, and second th interesting, one, another interesting thing is that look at the static route of this one. We actually hinted on that already. But it says the, the static route here is <clears throat> basically the default route is the IP address of ITS1 each 0, ITS1 each 0. Well, so let us see you, uh, right. So just brought out the interface here. So this is each 0. So it says this is the IP address. So I can, if I change the IP address, then this, this, this uh, static route here will be automatically updated. Otherwise, if I change the IP address here, I have to know you know, I'm changing the address here, but now I have to know which other guys are depending on me. So then I have to go to all those routers and change it. But all of that is taken care of automatically. Okay. So when uh, you click a button, uh, you do the emulation. So th it generates it generates all these. Okay, okay, so it's working. Okay, so uh, I've started a, a ping, continuous ping. So, okay, so I'll, I'll show you all the intermediate steps, but I'm showing you the end state here. So, it took that uh, diagram and it is a live diagram. So, it generated all the, it, it created all the uh, constraints and then it solved them and it generated all the uh, real configs and it fired up an emulation. This is in core. So, these are Linux routers. And um, so, I, I open up a window on uh, TS, TS1 here, TS, and I did a ping from here to this guy here, the TS. So this is the 10.157.0.128. So the ping is working. So I've tested tested uh, one aspect of it, which is the connectivity between the TS uh, uh, devices uh, across uh, across enclaves. So that's nice. Well, how about the fault tolerance? So that's that and open up a window here and uh, I've actually made the ETH1 here down. So if I do ETH1 up, so this is the reverse of fault tolerance. What if a new link uh, were to come up? Then it's going to show, it should, uh, you know, divert the traffic, uh, do some load balancing here. And there we go. So it shows the load balancing. You know, I can again make it go down. So I can make it go down and then it will, you know, 
shunt the traffic back here, uh, uh, back here. So I would have a test that OSPF is working. Uh, what about encryption? So I'm doing a uh, yeah, I'm doing a TCP dump on this router here on ETH1, and it's showing me that uh, it, uh, it's receiving ESB packets. So packets are, are encrypted. So these are evidence. These are tests. Obviously, this is not exhaustive. But at least there is some evidence that things are working as, as expected, and you can do a lot more of this stuff. And then finally, uh, right. Now, th th uh, th this is pinging 10202, which is this guy. So TS1 cannot ping uh, S2 because it's in a different domain. So is the, does that work? Well, if you try to ping, then it is hanging, which is exactly as it should be, right? This ping should not succeed. Ping between this and this should succeed, but ping in between this and this should not succeed. So, so this is the this gives you an idea of how of the end-to-end -end workflow that you you have a concept, you have a new architecture. Well, you can model it in the visual language. You click a button and you fire up an emulation and you can test it. Okay. So what goes on under the covers here? So that uh, specification here was translated into a text, uh, a text language, which is also fairly usable. We actually used the text language for quite some time, but this is hardly any, uh, you know, not very, not very large. So this gives you an idea of how, the, how compact, you know, the abstractions are really high level, and you can compact these things, specify even a complex things like that quite, quite, uh, quite compactly. So this is saying that 10.151.0.0.24 has two interfaces, S1, ETH0. S1 is a, is a device, and uh, ETH0 of that, and IS1 of ETH0. IS1 is the, is the internal inner gateway. So um, there are a whole bunch of subnets, and this is a whole bunch of full mesh IPsec tunnels. And then these are the next hops. So he's saying that the next hop of S1 See, next hop of S1, uh, at S1, this is the default route, so 0, 0, 0, 0, and 0. This is equal to the IP address of IS1, right? So S1 and IS1 were directly connected previously. And this is just saying, send it to the IP address. And I don't have to know what the IP address is. It doesn't even exist here. It's, these are all generated automatically by the constraint solving because this, this is directly connected. You see, this is the same thing. You're saying that the default route at S1 is equal to the IP address of IS1, ETH0. Okay, so that's the specification language. And then this is translated into spec.z3, which is, these are all primitive constraints here. So this is basically saying that uh, it's the IP address of B4 ETH2 should not be equal to the broadcast address. And you can verify that, you know, BV and of this should not be, and if you do the BV and and BV or and all that, that uh, one sec. Um, so anyway, all those constraints are uh, compiled down into low-level constraints here. This is a Z3 file. So when you solve this, you get a solution file, which is the values of all these variables. 
So the IP addresses are assigned and then the IPsec uh, ACLs are assigned, the other IPsec encryption algorithms are defined and hash algorithms and the keys and the remotes and the next stops, these are all defined in the OSPF areas, these are all defined, these are all solved. And then from here you generate the uh, okay, one sec. So, yes, CD Linux B one H. Okay, so this is the Linux file, right? The solution file was translated into the Linux file and into the Linux syntax. And this is actually quite a complicated thing. You know, you make one mistake. The, all the, not only you have to get the values right, but also the syntax right, and all the, all sorts of backslashes and and greater than signs and all that horrible stuff. So you make one mistake, then you know it's, it's not going to work. And this alone can chew up huge amounts of your time. But this is all automatically generated. Okay, so that's the overall workflow. So to get back to the uh, <coughs> specification. Uh, oh yeah. So unsat core, let's show you uh, an interesting, so suppose that out here we are saying that uh, this guy is ITS2 and we want to, uh, this is in, in this range, uh, let's say, let's say 11, 0, 0. 112300 0, 0. and if I take this and make it, force its address to be let's say 12.240.0.0 uh, you know, or 24, right? If I force this address to be this and then if I try to find a solution, in fact I can just do a, a test specification. So let's see what it what, and it says immediately says unsat core. So this says that you're you're trying to place ITS one eight zero in this uh, you know eleven two thirty six zero zero, but you're also forcing the address to be twelve two forty zero zero. These two things are not possible. So this is a this is the unsat core in action. Okay, and. Uh, yeah, of course. If you if you change it, if you change the address, then it'll propagate. And you know, the if you change the address, um, if you change the network ID, the rather, if you change the network ID to be eleven two thirty six one zero twenty four, then it'll change the um, static routes. It'll, it'll because this address will be reassigned, so it'll change the static route here, and then it'll change the IPsec. Um, uh, configurations and uh, uh, you know all the full full meshes will all, all automatically be updated. So and then check, checking design consistency, right? So these are all the different aspects. Uh, these are no, no, there are there are several other aspects that we don't have time to go through, but we'd be happy to do so later on today or or tomorrow. <clears throat> okay. So what are some new? Oh, any questions up till now? Yes, please. I'll go ahead and use the, the device from the area. 
Yeah, may I ask about the previous screen? Uh, was it your um, software or it was core emulator? No, we generated the files for core. Uh -huh. So we generate all the Linux files and then we wrap them up in a core files and, and we mm -hmm. call core. Mm -hmm. So that GUI um, page, it was from core? Right. Oh. The emulation page is, uh, is the core page. Right. So there are two GUIs, yeah? So there is this one. This is DADC. Right? This is DADC. This is uh, our stuff. And this is core. They're two separate GUIs. Basically, they are the, the extreme ends of the workflow. You start with the with the DADC GUI and you end up with the core GUI. Yeah. Yes, please. So I just had a, uh, a quick question about going from the solver to the configuration. The solver must produce uh, valid configurations for a whole slew of possible address assignments. So how did you get from that to a specific choice of address assignments? Do you just have an algorithm that says start start assigning hosts one, two, three? It picks some. As part of the subnet constraint, it just picks some address because that's basically all it's doing is solving a constraint satisfaction problem. And here you are said that these two guys should be in the subnet. And uh, yeah, yeah. I understand, but so do you just, you just assign them sequentially? I mean, how, how do you get from constraints which are yes or no to, to actual assignments? Oh, right. That is the job of the SMT solver. It'll, because it is saying, uh, I need to find the values of these variables so that they, all these four conditions are satisfied. And, you know, and low, I can, I can pick these two guys, and this is up to it, its own internal algorithm. If you want more control over this, then you can have, you just need to specify more constraints, you know, strengthen the constraint. So you have yeah, that's yeah. There could be multiple solutions, right? That's what I'm saying, there's multiple, so, so I wanted to know how you pick the one. No, the system, the solver picks one. But in, in, that, that satisfies it, there's no, uh, reason why it picks one over the other. There's a microphone that you just uh, hit the button. Oh, there's a microphone. Thank you. Yeah, so, so the, uh, to repeat the question that Doug was asking, he was asking how, how does the, the choice of or the selection of IP addresses happen? Is there an algorithm that you implemented? Or, and the answer that you gave was that the solver actually picks an assignment to IP addresses that satisfies the constraints. And there may be, may be multiple solutions, but it picks one of them. Even for the hash algorithms or encryption? Right? Yeah, it, it can, if you give it the choices. Yeah, yeah. Everybody should use their microphone. If you give it the choices, yes, or, it will. I'll repeat the question, Sanjay. Right, you said even for the hash algorithms, yeah. So if you give it the choices, it will pick some. Uh, yeah, say again, all it's doing is solving the constraints. So if you want more control, then you just have to strengthen the constraints, add more constraints. Sanjay, you may want to talk about the moving target defense aspect. That right. So, we, well, yeah. So you, you, you could use this thing for moving target defense. Uh, 
So you know these these are my requirements. And now suppose I wanted to do uh, change this address. Let, let's let's do this then. So let's kill this. I got rid of that fixed address, and I want to now. Uh, okay, let's stop this core emulation and let's restart. So suppose I want to change this to from 105300 to 153, right? And now will this work? So let's see, specification, run core emulation. So it's trying to solve for, for those and uh, okay, so this one, let's go this one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, this is just uh, core actually. So shut down. Okay. So shut down. But it fired up this time. It the it new emulation came up right because there was no unset core. And okay. I did say shut down. Right. Okay. Good. So now, see the the new address address assignments are in the hundred hundred space. It was initially ten. Now this is hundred something something something. So it updated the addresses. It updated the OSPFs. It updated the the tunnels. Yeah. So everything all constraint solver magic. So that's. So that okay yeah so what are the some f future directions um, done okay well okay I'll just take one minute I'll just to go over it basically uh, configuration at upper levels so can we can we uh, extend the same framework to upper levels and there's a very interesting quote from Matt Welch from Google who says escape from configuration hell and he says a lot of effort is devoted to writing good programs but when you configure them uh, is, is, is incredibly hard. It is often vast and incredibly complex configuration settings as control the software. So why can't we update research directions is, you know, how can we improve these tools with AI, right? So ideally, why should we even set up a network, right? Can we just, uh, can our AI agent just divine what our intent is and go and set up the network? Done, right? No need to drag and drop these things. But less, less ambitiously, can we, uh, you know, do some autocomplete or recommender systems or have a conversational interfaces. You know about Amazon Echo, uh, where you can just talk to the thing and order products. Well, ordering services isn't fundamentally different. Doesn't seem to be than, than offering products, right? And you know, similar ideas for configuration change planning is a very important problem. Like, if I want to change the configurations of a deployed network, how do I know I'm not going to break something? So. This is very, very hard because you don't know what the requirements are. So maybe we could use AI for, for this, um, maybe learn what a correct configuration is and you know, evaluate. 
And, uh, you know, we shouldn't forget that uh, deductive reasoning is another form of AI. You know, theorem proving and all was big, was a, is a major branch of AI. So can we combine um, AI with that deductive reasoning with machine learning, which is a vogue these days, very powerful form of AI. So and these are a bunch of references, uh, several publications and several patents and several applied for. So thank you for your attention.